So, Dave, how's your week? Uh, my week was great, man. It's uh, it's been busy here in Raleigh. It, you sound, Dave. You sound different. What is it? Is it's this Raspberry Pi I've been trying to eat. It's kind of caught <laughs> my throat a little bit. You're not. You sound like Jason. You're not Dave. You're Jason. Yes. <laughs> uh, you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, no problem. Hi, uh, I'm Jason Hibbets. I'm a project manager here at Red Hat in corporate marketing, and I'm uh, being uh, both a guest and a co-host today on the Dave and Gunner Show. That's right. Well, and in fact, you're you're more than just a project manager to most of us, Jason. For actually, I think most people know you as the like the godfather of OpenSource.com, right? I wouldn't use that terminology, but some people might <laughs> uh, might fill, use those words. Yes, <laughs> actually, it's um, there's so many different roles that that we play, uh, that I play on a day to day basis, and that includes um, being an editor, being a writer, being a contributor, a community. Uh, I just like project manager because it sounds so much cleaner than all those put together. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, so the, and you've got. Well, we'll talk about all your extracurricular stuff, too. Um, but I guess the first thing is, I, I mean, I knew you. You worked for the brand team, right? That's where you started at Red Hat? Actually, that's probably where you met me. I've, I've been at Red Hat for just over 10 years. So I, I've been, um, been in a variety of places. I, I, I mean, um, I'm, I'm sitting here feeling pretty good about my seven years. Um, but 10 years, man, that was a lot. That's a lot. I got the next hockey puck, you know. <laughs> we have, uh, so at Red Hat, we've got these service awards, and they give you a little um, little circle-looking hockey puck thing with the number 5 and the number 10 on it. So I've got the number 10. And, uh, if, you know, I, that takes me back to 2003. I started at Red Hat at, uh, as a in global support services, and I was basically a frontline technician. I would pick up the phone and I would say, how could I fix your Red Hat Linux today? Because in 2003, we were basically selling CDs of Red Hat Linux with coffee mugs and T-shirts. And we didn't have all this cool, great technology that we have nowadays, uh, like Red Hat Enterprise Linux and uh, JBoss Middleware and all the cloud and the OpenStack and all the great technology that we have now that's, um, that's really making a difference um, you know, in the technology industry. Tree. Yeah, yeah. You, you, so that's right. You, you were you were just fixing people's web servers, right? That was the <laughs> pretty much. I was like doing like most people just couldn't figure out how to log on to Red Hat Network, which was fascinating. Um, so we I walked a lot of people through configuration. Um, I'd fix people's Apache.com files, uh, just a variety of things that you know any kind of sys admin would would need. To, they'd you know run into a roadblock. Uh, the interesting thing about the open source community is a lot of those folks want to try to solve their own problem. Mm-hmm. So, like picking up the phone and calling technical support is really the, one of the last options that they would exhort. Um, and, uh, and so, it was great to just you know you feel really um, really good when you can help someone out and, and get their problem going. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I know we and now we make it easy. We get the support portal or the Red Hat customer portal. Um, we have like a for real knowledge base, and so. Yeah, hopefully make these. It's funny. So it's, I'm glad you mentioned the knowledge base because I actually was I was one of the first people to work on the um, first iteration of that. And so after oh, cool. I did technical support, I worked on Red Hat knowledge base, and I'd literally just taken the project over after it was launched. And we had about 300, uh, 300 kind of technical articles, frequently asked questions in there. And over the next um, one to two years, that I was working on that project, um, I helped grow it from over 300 articles to over 3,000 articles. And I love to say that I inspired engineers to contribute, um, which is harder <laughs> than actually writing all that content myself. Right, right. All you had is 
well, like, probably just carrots and no sticks, right? All you could do is like bribe them with beer to write K-based articles. True, but I actually was able to put an incentive program internally around here, and that's uh, one of the ways that we were able to build that up. And now it's uh, evolved into Red Hat Customer Portal, uh, which is apparently winning tons of awards. I think it's three years in a row that they've yeah. they've uh, award for the Customer Portal. Yeah, just last uh, just last week, right? Won the won the yeah. third one. That's awesome. Yeah, cool. So I did that um, after the knowledge base. I worked with a lot of strategic. Um, Red Hat open source partners through our um, ISV program, our independent software vendor program. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got to meet a lot of great um, business contacts and um, other companies that are deploying applications and, um, you know, just both middleware and other applications on top of Red Hat uh, and JBoss. And uh, it was great to to work with them. And then I came over to corporate marketing, uh, which at the time I was on the brand team, so I was coming over uh, and working basically with our uh, internal agency. So if anyone's done any sort of agency work where you need to go get like a logo designed or get a marketing campaign um, out the door, our team fu- basically has that function in-house here at Red Hat. And, um, and over the last couple of years, uh, we've gone through some changes, and, uh, and now we're corporate marketing, and we do some very similar things. But I have come over to the global program side of the house, and I'm – as you said, the godfather for opensource.com. <laughs> so tell me, so tell me how opensource.com started. Um, cause it's actually, it's a kind of an interesting story. I know we, there were kind of a bunch of kind of halting starts to it. And then eventually it caught steam and, and became what it is today. But maybe you could talk about kind of the origin of it. Sure. So the, um, the precursor to opensource.com was Red Hat Magazine. And Red Hat Magazine was an uh, kind of like a, it was an online publication that was I think it kind of came out monthly uh, around you know some something monthly ish. Uh, they would eventually evolve into like adding stuff on a weekly basis, but uh, it was a magazine and, and it focused a lot on Red, uh, just kind of some Red Hat technology. It focused on um, tips and tricks for the folks out there in the technical community, and uh, it was getting to a point where um, the brand team basically. Uh, was making a decision of like, should we continue this? It's great. We've we've got a great following, or can we do something else that has a bigger impact that reaches more people in the open source community? That's not very Red Hat focused. It's not specific to Red Hat. Mm-hmm. So we had this domain name, opensource.com, for years, right? And and it all it did for I don't know probably since I started was to redirect to RedHat.com. That's all it did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had this asset, and uh, the brand team sat down and. Um, talked through some different scenarios, and they said, "Well, why don't we do something community with it? Why don't we, why don't we highlight how open source uh, and the open source way is is um, can make a difference beyond technology and make a difference beyond software?" And so that's kind of like the origins of the idea of what OpenSource.com started as. It it, was, it kind of took over the publication components of Red Hat Magazine, and we went through that transition. Uh, we lost some folks in that transition, which is understandable. They were used to some very technical content, yeah. and we were providing a lot of more thought leadership content uh, around open source and looking at the different areas uh, in business yeah. and in government and in health and in law and all these really unique um, areas where open source is having a, a pretty big difference nowadays. Yeah, that was I mean, that's the thing that most exciting for me because the, the transition was – I mean, it, it is kind of stark, right? It went from, like, Apache configuration files to, like, interviews with Gary Hamill, right? Sure. Um, yeah. And so, the but I think it was for the good. Uh, it, it certainly, I enjoy opensource.com, um, especially the government channel. 
uh, yeah, of course. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is one of your favorites, right? So, the, so, and actually, that came to. That's actually the other thing I wanted to ask you about is all this like extracurricular stuff because like I knew you as you know project manager, the brand guy that you were starting opensource.com, and then all of a sudden you started showing up on the same mailing lists that I was on, uh, doing a bunch of open government stuff. Um, so what what did that look like for you? What was the trajectory? It was fast. It was really interesting. I didn't expect it. It kind of um, hit me on the side of the head and said, <laughs> "You should go this way." Uh, I um, you know, I've I've been doing this open source thing for you know over a decade, but I'm not a coder. Uh, I've I've kind of found my passion as as far as a community builder, and uh, and a community organizer, and so I was doing a lot of stuff here at the local level in Raleigh, North Carolina, and so you know I'm kind of one of those guys that would show up to city council meetings and participate in my local uh, community watch or neighborhood watch group. Oh, you, and, oh um, you're the guy. You're that guy yeah. who keeps showing up to the city council meetings, right? It would be, well, I kind of imagine that, like an empty chamber with just like, you're the only guy in the audience. Is it like that? Or yeah, is it? That's not, that's actually the other guy. <laughs> uh, the one that comes to every meeting. I actually just attend the meetings that I'm interested in that I actually want to say something about. Right, right. Uh, but I was involved, like I was involved in my local community and, um, through my work with opensource.com, I started to see some of this um, kind of open source applied to the civic space. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's really interesting because I was doing it and I had you know, done some stuff in my community. You know, I have a neighborhood watch mailing list and we've got like 300 people on it from our neighborhood. And that's cool because we, we have a, a place to exchange ideas. And you know, it's kind of like the new way to borrow sugar. You email someone like, hey, does anyone have – uh, can I borrow some sugar? But it's actually more like, does anybody know a good plumber? <laughs> right, right. Um, those type of things. And uh, and I just started to see what was happening in this open government space. And I started getting involved. And the first thing that kind of wrote me in was uh, um, a community called City Camp. Mm-hmm. And you know what City Camp is, right, Gunnar? I, I do, but but uh, but most of our listeners probably don't. You should, you yeah. should walk through it. The way I describe City Camp, it's an international unconference series that brings open source and technology to local municipalities. And if you're not familiar with the uh, unconference side of the house, right, a lot of people have gone to trade shows and you go to registration, you get an agenda, and you go to a keynote, and you go from room one to room two to room three, kind of like what you guys did last week at Red Hat Summit. Yep. Um, and nothing wrong with that. It's a great, great way to share information and get access to experts. Um, but an unconference is interesting because the it, uh, the organizers plan the time, the place, uh, the food, all the logistics. The only thing they don't plan is the agenda, and so they basically the agenda for them is like nine to five on a Saturday, and the agenda is planned by the attendees, right? And Gunnar, you've gone, you've done some of these things, right? Transparency camp, you were weren't you at one of the first one one of those? Yep, yep. I was, yeah, I was at the first T camp, and um, well, I, I've been to a bunch of them, and they really are amazing, right? The the one of the catchphrases I use to describe the experience is um, if you're at an unconference and you can't find a sign for the bathroom, it's because you haven't made one yet. Right. Um, and that's, it's a super open sourcey way of running a conference, right? Or I get one of my favorite stories that I hear you, you told before is uh, where's the coffee? Oh, we didn't get the coffee yet. So someone go get the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but it's great because I love the, I love the format because as an attendee, it's, it's a, it's, a great way not only for you to share some stuff that you know, but it's also a great way for you to learn and to go to stuff that you actually care about. So, you know, a typical unconference, you vote with your feet. 
And if you're at the session and it's not what you expect, you quietly get up and you go to another room and you're, you're learning something or you're going to be able to teach something because you pitched an idea and, and you made the agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So back to City Camp, right? So City Camp is this basically an unconference series focused on bringing, um, you know, just bringing together average citizens, developers, uh, media, elected officials, and government workers together to identify um, challenges in their community and identify ways to um, to address those challenges. And so that's kind of the first thing that wrote me in. We a couple of um, folks included an elected official here. His name is uh, his name is Bonner, and we started talking on Twitter, and we basically committed to doing a city camp in Raleigh uh, over Twitter. So because it's you know public. It was. He couldn't take it, it back. There. Yeah. It, right. <laughs> uh, the cool thing was is that other people saw that, and our. Um, it, it really wasn't that hard to find a, a core group of people that were that was interested in doing it, and so our planning group grew really quickly over the course of two to three weeks to about um, eight to ten people, and uh, a lot of the first few weeks were discovery about like what is city camp, what's an unconference, how do we do it, uh, and we basically. At one point, um, I think it was probably about the end of March, we picked a date. Said, "All right, the first weekend in June, we're gonna we're gonna do a three day unconference." And from that point on, it you know, twelve weeks, we met every week and uh, we made it happen. We got sponsors, we brought in some um, some speakers for um, motivation and to kind of get the lay of the land. So we kind of did a hybrid. Um, our first city camp, we had a half an, af- an afternoon on Friday where we brought in a business panel of experts, a government panel to give us some, some insight, and, uh, and then we had our unconference on Saturday. And then we had a build component. We had a – most people would call it a hackathon, but our community wasn't quite ready um, for that terminology, so we called <laughs> it a, a build day. Uh-huh. And, um, and we weren't really too focused on the code component. We were focused on like what's the best idea that can come out of the weekend and and at the end of Saturday, we had like I don't know six or eight teams that had signed up to participate uh, for a five thousand dollar cash prize. And at the end of the day, end of the day Sunday, um, they did presentations, and we awarded uh, five thousand dollars to a team that uh, focused a little bit more on education. But uh, it was really an open data problem, right? Uh, typically, uh, what a lot of people will find is there's um, there's information available, uh, but you have to have certain either software or you have to have, you know, Adobe to get a PDF and it's not true open data. So what this team did is uh, they, they wanted the end of year test result scores for, you know, grades K through 12. And amazingly enough, that information is available, but you had to walk down to the middle of downtown, give someone 10 bucks and get a CD that was Microsoft access format. Wow. And so this team, yeah, ch- first challenge, they're all on Macs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they needed to convert the software, but they essentially took this um, took this available data from access format, converted it into uh, a machine readable format that put it on the web, and then they graphed it right they, they took the the real what I really like about the open data stuff is the visual piece, and they said all right my my son or daughter is going to be able to go to these six schools next year and they they graphically mapped on a Google map the end of year results um, test scores for reading and math uh, at those six schools. That's really. Do you great. think that's more useful than a PDF that you've got to sort through fifty pages? Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. That's a, that's awesome. And so, is that now yeah. is that now institutionalized? Yeah. Is that is that kind of does the is that now how the city publishes the data, or is the team still doing the conversion work 
Um, yeah, I wish it was that easy. That's actually we as we discovered through that process. It's actually a state thing. It's a at the state of North Carolina level. So we uh, we didn't have as much influence there. But um, I think you know we we actually that project kind of shed some light on that and the tides. Uh, at that point in time, two years ago, that's when the tides, I think, started to shift, and we started making, um, we started influencing how that data could be presented. And I'll kind of just fast forward. Uh, this year, we we just held our city camp here at the at the beginning uh, at the end of May, mm-hmm. and uh, we upgraded the experience from just being city camp Raleigh to being city camp North Carolina. So we just said, hey, you know what? We've had a, done a great job with the city and getting them engaged. Let's try to take more of a statewide approach, and it was awesome. We had over 200 people show up to our event. Um, we had great speakers, and um, and we had another group of, of great folks competing, and uh, they just a variety of ideas. The one of the one of the winning teams um, took some open data available from the city of Raleigh that uh, displays permit information, mm-hmm. and they wanted to show kind of like real time, like what kind of construction was happening and um, what what kind of rating i guess i don't know if ratings is the right word but just to kind of show you um what's like what's being constructed in your neighborhood what contractors are doing what and how much some of those projects cost so it was a really really cool idea oh wow yeah that sounds really i mean that sounds genuinely interesting right like yeah <laughs> it's kind of interesting but it's cool yeah 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 totally they it, actually built the deck that cost twenty thousand dollars <laughs> who's your contractor how do you know all this <laughs> Well, so is the so did you have any in this last count? Um, were there any projects that you felt like didn't get the attention it sh- it deserved, or were you like were there any underdogs for you? There, um, you know, there. I think this camp was a little bit different. We there was more conversations that happened, and I I think that I don't know why I didn't expect it, but because we had kind of transitioned from being just a city focused one to the whole state. Mm-hmm. I think the whole concept of unconference and, and just kind of meeting people and having those connections happen uh, was really important uh, for that transition. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there were a lot of great ideas. I, I my, one of my personal ones that I actually pitched the session um, and it really wasn't a lot of action that could happen out of it, but I was basically saying, Hey, why don't we have an open data policy statewide? Yeah, right. Well, and you were instrumental in in getting the the Raleigh open data policy conducted, right? Yeah, that that was. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about that next. <laughs> <laughs> That's that was a, a lot of work. Um, but yeah, so we ba- that was basically a discussion, and um, and we 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 had some actions afterwards. But it really wasn't like you couldn't. I wasn't going to win a pri- prize money for that. It was more like let's start this conversation here because we've got right people at the table, and uh, and we got it going and. Um, it, I will make a note that was before the open by default legislation or the directive that came out. So I was, um, it was either right after it, but I definitely, I have some evidence that I pitched the idea before that came out. <laughs> Back to the biography of Jason. Um, sure. At what point did you get involved in code for, so you were dealing with city camp, which was actually, yeah. that that was the brainchild of Kevin Curry, right? I don't know. It's a good friend of mine. We, he's actually, so um, he's in Virginia beach mm-hmm. and, um, we we talk pretty frequently. I I grew up on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, so we're we're kind of both uh, beach guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Surfers, right? Uh, I'm a surfer. I don't know about Kevin. He might try. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, no, he does. He tries to get. In. He definitely he definitely like looks the part, right? Because he'll because he'll roll in and like you know flip flops and you know like I'll, I want to say I have this image of him, which I don't know if he actually earned, but it's like flip flops, um, like an old pair of jeans. Uh, 
uh, Hawaiian shirt, and he's got like that sandy blonde hair. I mean, he actually like yeah, he's got the perfect role. Yeah, for, yeah, totally. It's, I think it's just kind of that that casual. Uh, I call it island style. You know, it's like no worries, man. What, yeah, yeah. No stress, no worries. Don't be a cloud on a sunny day, kind of thing. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Both of you remind me actually of, of Hawaii, right? Right. I love. Yeah, well, you're from there, but I, I love going to Hawaii. I, I go every. We watch Hawaii Five O, my wife and I. <laughs> We every after every episode, I think she's looking at you know travelocity or orbits to see how much flights are. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, now I got to I got to include the uh, links to my Hawaii travel tips in the show notes. Um, so they, so but it, you were you were working with Kevin on the city camp stuff, and then at some point, both of you flipped over to Code for America. Um, yeah, so Kevin was um, so city camp is like it's not really run by anyone. Kevin's probably the closest person to that because he was one of the co-founders along with Jen Polka who mm-hmm. um, you know started Code for America mm-hmm. and uh, and so he was running his company and they and Code for America basically said hey we want you to work for us and, and he went over there and his uh, his role for Code for America was to be to lead this new brigade program and uh, the Code for America brigade is basically just a group of volunteers that helps to stand up some of the civic apps and the civic applications that their fellows are creating uh, in their city. So essentially, like our our city camp group kind of backed into the brigade program because mm-hmm. we were we were kind of doing that. We were we were well organized. Um, we had you know run two successful city camps, and I basically like Kevin called me. He was like, "Hey, you guys are we're doing this brigade program. You guys are pretty much it." As far as like you, you're doing what the brigade program outlines, right? And uh, we just had to go through some formalities, and so we we formed uh, Coach America Brigade here in Raleigh. The cool part about that though is um, we have a for those that don't know the the RTP or the Research Triangle region, you know we've got um, other cities uh, in close proximity. Um, usually they're about 20 minutes away with no traffic, but we've got Durham and Chapel Hill and Cary, and we've got a lot of kind of like really smart like PhD tech and health kind of you know stuff happening here. And so as we formed our brigade here in Raleigh, um, I was at the Open Data Day. Um, event that was held in the town of Cary, which is right next to Raleigh, this past February. And our brigade went and we presented and we talked to them. And uh, lo and behold, they had a very similar group of folks that was passionate about technology and open source. And so they formed their brigade. They recently formed a brigade in Cary. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got folks in Durham. They, uh, they're been, they've been meeting on a weekly basis for the last few weeks, and they're literally on the verge of forming a brigade there. So we're actually looking to form... Um, to work as a region uh, with our different Code for America brigades, and um, and I, what's the military term? I keep I, I, it's not legion, but whatever the next piece up from a brigade is, like a battalion or a regiment or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. So we're gonna we're looking to have one of those. Uh, it might be the first one. It may not be blessed by Code for America, but we're we're gonna do that. Yeah. And and the, so the really cool thing about that is we can work individually based on our the rules and regulations and procurement processes that our, our individual towns have, but we definitely want to have participate in the knowledge sharing portion of it. So, um, so for example, our brigade stood up the uh, Adopta application, which started in Boston as Adopta fire hydrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people would say, Jason, why would people want to adopt a fire hydrant? Apparently, um, <laughs> J- 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 Jason, why would people want to adopt a fire hydrant? Yeah, well, let me tell you, Gunner. The um, <laughs> When it snows, uh, 
apparently the city of Boston does not have enough staff to go out and clear the fire hydrants. Um, so you may wonder, well, why would they need to clear fire hydrants? Apparently when they get frozen, they don't work too well. So they have Code for America came in and created this application through their fellowship program. And uh, they allow citizens to adopt fire hydrants so that they can clear out the snow around them after a big snow event. Really cool idea. Yeah. Um, the best part about that is that the code is open source. So another city can come in and take that, um, take that um, code base and apply it to their city. So the city of Chicago took that code base and they said, hey, we're going to do adopt a sidewalk where folks can adopt sidewalks. And after it snows, they're responsible for cleaning off the sidewalk. And the city of, I think, Seattle took it, and they said, let's, let's going to do uh, adopt a storm drain. So after it rains and the storm drain, drains get clogged, the citizen who adopts it goes out and clears out the storm drain. You might know that the city of Honolulu mm-hmm. um, adopted the adopt program, and they do adopt a tsunami siren. And citizens <laughs> help out with monthly testing to make sure that the siren works and that the batteries are charged and, and those type of things. That's, a, that's so, a, what people don't yeah. know about the, those tsunami warrants is that I think it was every the first Wednesday of every month at about 3 o'clock, right, as school is letting out, um, it's this ho- chilling, horrifying wailing siren will start up and you could hear it everywhere on the island right everyone can hear it um and it sounds like when you know when i was like a little kid like 12 or 13 i would like imagine it was like pearl harbor all over again and i'd you know kind of fantasize about you know jumping into a bunker you know as the japanese zeros are flying over um anyway those those uh those sirens are everywhere and uh, are really part of like the life on the island, right? Like everybody just yeah. knows about them. Um, so that's really cool. That's, could... But apparently people steal the batteries out of them. Yeah, yeah. So that's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> agreed, agreed. Yeah, so they've got an app for the citizens to get, you know, this is all about citizen engagement, right? And citizens kind of taking ownership in their community again. And that's just, you know, one way that they can do it. We brought this app back to Raleigh and um, kind of paired it with an existing program called Adopt a Bus Shelter, where citizens can adopt bus shelters, and basically they just kind of keep an eye on it, make sure there's um, no graffiti or anything put on it, and they basically just go in and, and spruce it up once a month. So our, our brigade did that. Um, or, and, and so our brigade can do that, and we can figure out how to, how to do it and the best practices around it, and then we can share that back not only with our future division but with other Code for America brigades and other communities looking to adopt those type of things. Mm-hmm. Where um, you know someone like maybe the town of Cary or let's say the Durham wants to stand up an, an art finding application, um, they can take that project, take the lead on it, figure out best practices, and then share what they've learned back with us. So we don't. So we're all instead of competing, we're all collaborating, and I think that's really kind of gets down to the true spirit of open source. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. And so that, like, as if you needed more stuff to do. So you went from uh, project management became opensource.com became city camp became code for america first a brigade now a division uh so the next step is what naturally you're uh, writing a book right yeah i know and i never aspired to write a book but, um <laughs> literally so the story this is a great story i um i woke up it was this past december it was like right around mid-december i woke up one morning and um I, I was like scrambling for my notebook i'm like where's my notebook i've got to write this down i was like and i just had this vision and this thought I was like I should write a book about all the stuff that I, that's been happening here the last two years so I um, scribbled down a few title options I literally wrote an entire outline um, and then I closed my book and I sat on it and um, I didn't literally sit on it I put it to the side and then I let I let the idea marinate for a while 
And uh, I pitched it to a couple folks, uh, said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And they're like, oh, my gosh, it would be great, man. I think that would be awesome. And then I told my wife, and uh, I said, I'm going to write a book. And she goes, oh, that's awesome. I said, I'm going to write a book over uh, the holiday break. And she said, you're crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's what I, and, She's so supportive. So that, that's really great. <laughs> Keep in mind, I've got two kids, right? So this was all about like, hey, this is family time. <laughs> and, um, but no, I was like, I was like, I got it. I was like, I got a plan. It's going to be great. Um, because, you know, we've got this awesome thing called Creative Commons. Mm-hmm. I was able to take a lot of the stuff that I was, um, had written for opensource.com that was under Creative Commons license and incorporate it into the book. Uh, and because you can modify it, I was able to update things and um, and enter and make better transitions. So it's not just a collection of like articles. It's actually that's that's kind of the base, the foundation for it. Which, by the way, the book is called uh, "The Foundation for an Open Source City." And as I was going through it, what I did is I outlined. Um, it's just a lot of my experiences from City Camp and Code for America and all this open government stuff I've been uh, kind of roped into. I outlined the five elements of an open source city, and then I basically use Raleigh as a case study to highlight how those uh, are influence our community, and um, and and basically use it as a way for other folks uh, who want to take this idea of an open source city and apply that brand for their city. I bet you, Gunner, that folks might want to know what those five um, characteristics are. Yeah, no, this is great. I'm actually just leaning back. I'm going to let you interview yourself. You're doing a great job. Okay. You're doing a bang-up okay. job. So, I mean, definitely, obviously, talk about the the, the, the five five pillars, you said. So I definitely want to hear about the five uh, the five foundational elements, the five characteristics of an open-source city, but also, like, why an open-source city is important in the first place. Because, um, like, can't the city just, like, install RHEL and run JBoss and then go home? Isn't that – that's an open-source city, right? Yeah, no, not quite. No. Um, I think that's, you know, the the software piece is important, but as uh, as I learned by working with um, by learning about open source and working with different communities, it's really about the collaboration and and the culture of that community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's great that your any city can come and just um, and get an open government policy and open data policy. But if you don't have that buy in component from the citizens, then it's it's kind of meaningless, right? Right. Right. Um, and we, we should maybe talk about that too, the, the whole policy thing, because that, that's, I've got some good tips and tricks that folks might be able to use, um, use with that. Um, should we talk about that now or should we? Yeah, no, I mean, go ahead if you want to, well, yeah, well, well, okay. Well, so we've been, we've been teasing people with the, with the five pillars. Yeah. So talk about the five first. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, so, um, it was probably, it was maybe about a year and a half ago. Um, the city of Raleigh. Um, basically released an, an open government policy that also had an uh, open data component tied to it. And, uh, you know, although, although that came out, um, there was a lot of work that led up to that, right? There was a lot of one-on-one conversations with elected officials explaining open source and the values of open source and why it's important, right? It's not just, hey, you should run Red Hat JBoss and WordPress and right. all these other great technologies, um, you know, on uh, in your infrastructure, but it's really about, hey, if you do this, this is these are the other values that you're getting out of using open source. You're, you know, um, I mean, this is kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis, right? It's it's explaining. It's not just you know cost savings. It's it's avoiding lock-in, and it's about having open standards yep. and being able to 
not just uh, it's being able to, to have other things that are interoperable with your system and then you're not tied to a particular person yeah. or event yeah. that type of thing. Well, and also, and also it's about making yourself available to innovation from the outside, right? Which is kind sure. of, which is exactly what I presume an open source city would be about, right? Making the city, you know, rather than forcing the city to kind of solve all of its own problems is actually conducting your work in a way that lets other people help you, right? Yeah. Well, I think going back to the Adopta example, I think that's a perfect example, right? It's like this one idea that that started in Boston spread almost like wildfire to these other cities and was just adopted uh, almost instantaneously for different types of civic infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? And depending mm-hmm. on the programs that were in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, and, uh, it, and it's funny. It's I, I imagine it's not necessarily like a revolutionary idea, but the but the use of I guess it's the well, so actually, let me turn that into a question. So, is this this doesn't is this like a brand new idea? This idea that citizens can help government and government can help citizens is that is that like did that spring from Kevin Curry's forehead uh, in two thousand nine? Or I mean, there has to be a history there, behind I, this. I think right? he has a tattoo about that. <laughs> um, no, I mean this this goes. Back, I mean, I don't know where along the lines of history where this was lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been around for a long time. I mean, it's been around from the early days of the United States Constitution. It's been it's been around, um, you know, way before that. I'm not a historian, but you know, these concepts of sharing and collaboration and and working together uh, on behalf of the community. I mean, it probably goes back to the uh, prehistoric days. Right. Like their right. their their focus was survival. Mm-hmm. Um, our focus, and at least my my particular mission, is to create a better citizen experience, and and for me that means um, having making government more of a two way conversation instead of the typical uh, vending machine of services that most people expect, mm-hmm. or the hey I get to vote once a year and then you know they half the people more than half the people don't even do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've just gotten really um, kind of bogged down and turned off by a lot of the politics that are involved with it, yeah. and people feel that they can't make change happen, and this movement around open government or gov 2.0 and people seeing that that's, you know, technology is kind of helping us show some of, some of that change can happen, but, um, it's, it takes, uh, um, people that kind of know how to work the system, uh, and, and being able to change the system, uh, that's really having a bigger impact kind of overall. Yeah. Well, and I think it's significant too, that like when you sat down to write the book that you wrote the book about like an open source city versus an open source County or a state or, you know, federal government or whatever, um, because like at the city level, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? But that's where people yeah. are getting like those like retail government services. Well, and that's, you know, and I think that's, uh, it's one where people are most influenced by government, uh, and it's mm-hmm. where they can have the most influence in return. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if you think about particularly in the U S right. I mean, are you really going to go to Congress and, and get something changed? <laughs> you could, right. You can get a petition for, you know, 150,000 people and present it to your representative, um, but that's not necessarily going to have legislation passed, um, particularly not in a timely fashion. Right, right, right. So things are more impactful at the local level, right? And that's kind of how we got the policy passed. It was working individually with uh, elected officials and working in partnership with the IT department, um, and making sure that that they were actually, you know, you can't making sure that they would actually be able to deliver on the policy, not just write policy, but actually be able to implement it effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the key part uh, that I really love to talk about what how Raleigh approached it was they actually had a roadmap component to it. So they not only did they just pass the policy, but they also kind of had this checklist of 
here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks, months, uh, and quarters that are going to actually make this um, be a little bit more legitimate than just a piece of paper and a policy. Right, right, right. So actually, so wait, let's go back. So, so what are the five? What are the five characteristics? All right, five characteristics. I'm ready to me. Hold on, um, hold on. I got a pencil. I got to write this down. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. All right, you should type. It's probably faster. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So the first one I talk about a lot is um, culture, right? And it's uh, fostering a culture of of citizen participation, and and that I'll be honest with you, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, yeah. You've got a lot of special interest groups out there that may try to stop you, but um, I think when you when you see groups like City Camp and you see organizations like Code for America coming in and making a difference, and seeing citizens being able to um, influence their government in new ways, right? The um, I'll go back to the Adopta piece really quick. Like that whole scenario, uh, at least here in Raleigh, mm-hmm. that was the citizens choosing a piece of technology and implementing it on behalf of the city. The IT department didn't come and say, hey, we, we heard about this Adopt app. We think we should do this. It was citizens coming to the table and working with public utilities and working with the IT department to say, hey, we want to take your existing phone and paper uh, program mm-hmm. where you know someone has to call up and say, I want to adopt a shelter, and then they got to fill out some paperwork. And we want to make it electronic, and we want to show a map with all this stuff. We were actually helping choose the software, um, and that was that's a big difference, right? It's not the IT department telling citizens what to use; it's the citizens telling their government uh, and influencing them on what they should use. So that type of participation, I think, is key for the, the first element. Well, and that's got to be, like you said, that's got to be the hardest part too, right? Because that's got to be a little threatening to the IT department. Well, I think if it, it could be perceived that way, but if you approach it as a partnership, mm-hmm. uh, it's not as threatening. Right. 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 Okay. It's not coming in saying I want to, I want to come in and install this application. It's like, hey, we've got this idea. What do you think? And then and you work it, you work through it together. It's not hey, give me give me the access to your server. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's hey, let's let's figure this out. Let's get the right stakeholders involved, and then let's figure out what the next step is. Right. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. So that's number one: culture of citizen participation. Okay. Got it. All right. What's number two? Number two is having an effective government policy. Aha! Plain. This is this is near and dear to my heart now. Yeah. So what is so, it? You know, like I said, policy is, is just words, and being able to implement the policy is a different uh, is a, is another component of that. But um, you know, just starting with the policy and and getting it in there and, and working with elected officials to understand what it means is is another key step here. So what is a, what is the policy like? What why is why do you need a policy for this? Because you talk about the citizen participation. It sounds like you can just roll in with like 30 of your friends and, and just so, get, get started. The policy is important, <laughs> just in my eyes, uh-huh. because a lot of the way that a lot of the stuff is written nowadays does not favor using open source software. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the procurement process, uh, and I don't know everyone's different situation, but is very traditional in the sense that it leans towards a proprietary model. Mm-hmm. So what Raleigh did is they, um, and there's a couple of different ways people can approach it, right? Some, a lot of folks in Europe are like mandating the use of open source. Um, the policies that I think probably have a little bit more leeway and, and get more traction are the ones that put open source on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you wrote an article about writing um, a software policy and, that sounds uh, vaguely familiar. Yeah, maybe I did write that. 
of it or adding – you said take the word open source out of your pol- existing policy and it should look very familiar to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it goes back to the idea of open source being the same as – should just be treated the same as proprietary. So if you have a policy that mentions open source at all, chances are pretty good you're actually doing open source harm rather than good. Um, right. Because you shouldn't have to. Any policy you put in place, the same rules should apply because um, if it's a good idea for proprietary, it's almost definitely a good idea for open source, right? True. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's that's number two. Number three is also another policy one, but it's uh, it's more around open data. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to separate this out because um, the you know the software procurement side is a little bit different than the open data side, and you've got to have a different approach. Um, I, I would imagine most people are going to have. Uh, an open government policy before an open data policy, although that may not be uh, true here in the future. Mm-hmm. But they may need to be more comfortable with one or the other before they do both. Right, right, right. One, so one, the, one kind of leads to the other because they're kind of true. symbiotic, right? But hopefully, I mean, maybe in the future that won't make a difference. Maybe it'll just be, you know, the the bam, here's both of them. And, <laughs> right. And, right, right. So, the, you know, so the open data side, right, again, I'm not a like an open data like guru. I know a lot of open data gurus, and I talk to them frequently. Um, it's it's the difference between one not having any data at all, that, compared to having access to data, compared to having machine readable data, compared to having data that has some sort of visual component to it that actually you know a, a normal citizen like you and me could actually look at and go, oh, that's what a city budget looks like as a pie chart, right? right? And right. and you could maybe click on the pie chart and drill down and go, oh, well, a park costs $1.2 million. Why does a park cost so much? And then you drill down and you see, wow, they have to like build a building and make parking spaces and plant trees and put the equipment in and yep. then you can it's like just having this access if you want to go deeper you know some of these cool like open budget tools that are coming out um i think the didn't the city of new york just do something like that yeah yeah the uh checkbook 2.0 program yep. um and that was our friend of the show carl fogel uh was actually the uh one of the kind of the leads in, in helping that happen yeah. yep so that's um that's really cool stuff um so yeah the open data stuff is important because it i think a lot of um a lot of governments are going to go through this transition where they they make data accessible and then they make it uh, machine readable and then they actually make it through open data. And just you know, just for the listeners, one of the hot topics now is um, our um, who talks about it. Our friend, my friend Dave uh, in Canada, David Eaves. He does. A, he's a really expert in this. And he talks about like um, the the green data. Is it the green data, red data, and um, it's green data and blue data or something like green button, blue button, something like that. But uh, one of the hot topics in open data is privacy concerns, right? And so if we look at the Open Knowledge Foundation definition of open data, um, citizens should, should not be worried uh, because tr- open data from governments should not have any sort of personalization to them. It should all be anonymized. And that's just uh, one of the things that people need to address as they as they have that open data conversation. Okay, cool. So, so we've got, uh, so I got thirty of my crew in a room with the IT department. We have an effective open source policy. We have an effective open data policy. Uh, what now? What's next? What's number four? And it goes back to a, a little bit more around the community, mm-hmm. and it's uh, promoting open source user groups and conferences. And I, I kind of bundle these together because you know any kind of 
the user groups are important, right? A lot of times user groups, they need a place to meet. They maybe need some food at their meeting or they might just need, um, you know, they, they might just need a speaker to come talk to their group. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them are pretty well self-organized. If you go to meetup.com, you can find a ton of different user groups. Uh, they meet monthly, quarterly, however frequently. But supporting them is important because they're the folks that are going to kind of build back into number one, uh, that building that culture of citizen participation. And um, I threw the conferences in there because, you know, that's kind of just kind of for at least for me personally, for the city of Raleigh, um, that's one thing that we kind of had a void in is just having this um, having a, a conference around open source and just being able to have people come together and not only celebrate open source, but also just kind of have some experts come in and share their knowledge. It's it's part of that knowledge transfer. That's pretty important there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to OzCon next month uh, in Portland, so very jealous that they've got um, they've got a premier open source conference there. Um, but uh, as as a result of my book, you uh, this is not in the book because it happened after it was published. Uh, we will be having an open source conference come to Raleigh uh, this fall. Oh, awesome! And, um, well, that's great. It's not a but I know it's in the works. Uh, it's, it will be announced next week, and maybe we can uh, add a note to the show notes after that. Absolutely, absolutely. That's yeah. oh, that's awesome. Um, wow, good news. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so we're checking all the boxes. Uh, we got uh, I got thirty of my crew in a room. We have a an open source policy on one hand. We got an open data policy on the other. Uh, we're starting up conferences. We're starting up like an open government conference in Raleigh. Um, so what's the what's the the last step? The fifth step. Yeah. So th- this is really um, really about. Uh, the entrepreneurial and the innovation scene and it's being a hub for innovation and, uh, and for open source businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, this is important, right? I, I think in the book I say that there's kind of, there's a few magic words that you can say to politicians and elected officials to get them to pay attention. Uh, one of those magic words is job creation. Yep. And, um, and you know, if you need to influence uh, someone like that and, and, you know, why would they want to pass a government an open government policy and why would they want to pass an open data policy and why would they want to engage citizens it's because they can actually create jobs and they can actually um, influence their economic development that's happening in their in their city and uh, all these things can can lead to that and we can lead to having more open source businesses and that just further uh, enhances the ecosystem around open source so I understand why that would be true in principle but like do we have evidence that this stuff actually creates jobs or um, well, uh, the example that I don't think I use it in the book, but the example that comes to mind is uh, is the Drupal community. Um, Drupal's, uh, you know, the web content management system, and uh, and they've just got their community is exploding. They're they're in a situation where there's more demand for Drupal talent, and it does not exist. So the people that have Drupal talent now are um, are really um, making a good amount of money, and uh, and they have more projects uh, to do than they can actually. Um, they can bring in right right so uh, you know if you think about it in that context you know if, if um, you know if i were the president i might be telling people to go learn drupal um <laughs> but i'm not so um but it's just one of those things where you know it's uh, drupal is an open source um you know it has this great open source ecosystem and there's job demand for it right and there's yeah. a whole i think there's other examples like that that are out there yeah 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 absolutely no, that makes sense oh cool um so those are the five man I, that's you know even though you think you know, even though you just heard the five through in a little bit of example, there's much more detail in the book. And um, if you're, I'll just do my shameless plug. Yeah, do it. I, do it. Shameless plug kind of guy. <laughs> um, I've got a website set up. It's called uh, theopensourcecity.com, 
and um, I've got the paperback available and also a few e-copies. You can get it on Amazon and the iBookstore. And I uh, self-publish through Lulu, so it's also available on Lulu.com. Oh, nice. Uh, Lulu, uh, what a lot of people don't know, is Lulu is actually run by uh, Bob Young, uh, yeah. formerly uh, CEO, CEO co-founder, co-founder of, uh, of Red Hat. True. That's great. So I, I, and it's, I see it's, what you did there. an open source publishing platform. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. So not only do I have a story about an open source city, I used my local open source publisher and uh, I actually used an open source font on the book called Junction. <laughs> nice, nice. I think the only thing that's not open source about my book is the actual paper and and the cover, like the the material itself. And that's just a, we can fix that. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter. True. Of time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, very cool. So, so uh, all right. So you've been through been through opensource.com, been the city camp, Code for America, did the book. Uh, so who's playing you in the movie? Ooh, good question. Um, I might Johnny Depp maybe. That would be nice. A cool one. Yeah, yeah. Pirate themed open source city. <laughs> well, or I, I was thinking about the uh, uh, kind of the, he does he does have your your dark handsomeness right and just a just a little bit of edge right. He's just yeah. just a little dangerous. Uh, True. Come in, go walk into city hall with a little bit of a swagger. Great. You got to have the swagger. That's important. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, one other thing that your, your um, listeners might find interesting is, um, so I, I self-published the book, right? And um, I did a lot of research on this of whether I should like try to go to this publisher and do this whole traditional methodology, or if I should just, you know, like write the book and then boom, go upload it to Lulu, and voila, I've got a book. And that was literally how easy it was. Mm-hmm. Selling the book is a different story because yep. I'm not in sales; I'm in marketing. Mm-hmm. So, what did I? What do you think I naturally did, Gunner, to market my book? You, uh, I don't know. You went went on Twitter and you tweeted about it once a day. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not in marketing. I don't know this stuff. That's one strategy. <laughs> um, so, I uh, I did a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Oh, so, yeah, cool. If um, folks aren't familiar with Indiegogo, it's very similar to Kickstarter. Uh, although um, I, I got a chance to meet one of their co-founders a couple months ago, and, uh, and she told me that one of Indiegogo's mission, missions is to democratize crowdfunding. And translation, please. That means that anybody should be able to raise money for whatever project they want to do. Right, right. Because Kickstarter is, is well, a relatively closed platform, but they also have like rules around what kind of project you can do on them, right? True. And those rules are getting stricter and stricter every day. Right, 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 right. But no, big fan of Kickstarter. But Indiegogo is a little bit more—it's um, a little bit more open source. So mm-hmm. I, I went with that platform, and um, so I, I came up with a campaign. Uh, I wanted to raise three thousand dollars to get the first run of my book completed. I um, did a lot of research on all these other, uh, other other books and what kind of perks were popular. And so I did—you know—for five bucks, you get your name in the book and a cool sticker that says "Open Source All the Cities." Mm-hmm. Uh, for ten bucks, you get your name in the book, a sticker, and a bookmark. And then for 20 bucks, you get all the other stuff plus a signed copy of the book. And, um, and then I had a couple other you know, kind of bundled packages of books. So you can get like a bundle of five or a bundle of ten, uh, which you know, a lot of people um, took that opportunity to get a bundle of ten and, and maybe hopefully sprinkled those extra nine to their elected officials. <laughs> Just a suggestion. Uh, and then I uh, had a couple of cool you – know, if you're ever going to do a crowdfunding campaign, I would definitely recommend having um, – Having a kind of a couple far-fetched ones, or you know, just kind of these interesting ones. So I, I was like, "Hey, you want to have dinner with me in downtown Raleigh? The perks two hundred bucks, and you get a book, right? And, yeah. and I'm going to have dinner with um, 
with a you know a couple of folks that supported that, including um, my buddy Dave Mason. He uh, he contributed to that. Do you know Dave? Wait, do I, do I know Dave? I, you might. He he was an early Red Hatter. He um, worked at Mozilla, and now he's back and he works for a, a company called Newkind, and they do basically kind of some uh, consulting work, agency work, but have a very open source influence because there's a bunch of ex Red Hatters there. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. That's right. Um, so. it's the Oh, that's really cool. Um, and so, and so the the actual fundraising was almost like a viral campaign of its own, or not a viral. I keep saying viral; so it wasn't necessarily viral, but like it was it was a marketing campaign of its own. True. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, um, I ran it for about forty days, and like I so said, my goal was three thousand um, dollars. A lot of the techniques, you know, there was a lot of social media involved, right? Mm-hmm. And you've you've got to be willing to do the self promotion piece because uh, I'll be honest with you guys, no one's going to self promote your stuff better than you can. Right. Right. Um, and no one's going to care more about it than you do, so you've got to be willing to do that. So if you're shy, get unshy and, and get out there and do it. <laughs> um, I had a couple of guest blogs set up with folks like the Sunlight Foundation and, uh, and our friend Luke Fretwell over at Gulf Fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, had those guest blogs ready to go and um, trying to get some folks from outside of the Raleigh area and outside of my inner circle interested in it. And uh, the end result was uh, over 100 funders and over $4,000 that translated to 165 um copies of the book pre-sold awesome that's awesome man that's great news congratulations thank you i'm excited it's it's you know like i said it's not something i like had on my you know my bucket list but i i literally woke up one december morning and said i should do this there's a really good story here i think this would be a really great tool for other people to start this in their city and i'm starting to get some of that feedback now that um you know that the book's inspirational. That the book um, is is really going to change um, how how their city can be effective and how citizens can be effective. So that that's just really heartening for me. I, I'm not doing this for the money. Uh, I'm not making really much money off of it. Uh, I'm really grateful for the self-publishing experience, the crowdfunding experience, and really just sharing my experience with open government with um, with the open source, open data, and open government communities. Yeah, you know, so, and something I'm noticing about this whole arc or this you know trajectory that you had, Jason, is um, is how at every point you kind of stumbled into it, right? It wasn't like like you were saying; it's not like you were planning on doing a book. You just kind of like, oh, you know, be interesting. I think I'm about ready for a book now. Um, and at each stage, you were both helping other people, and other people were helping you. Um, yeah. And that that wasn't kind of something at the periphery, or that wasn't something that was happening at the margins. It was kind of central to the experience, um, which I think is really cool. I think it's I think it's outstanding. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like for being at Red Hat for over a decade. That's kind of part of my DNA, right? It's just like it's part of open source, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like you're um, as you evolve through whatever open source projects or communities you're in. Um, you're going to be an expert in something and you're going to be a novice in something else. And so it's, it's going to be that constant um, – it's really not a battle but this constant fluctuation of, oh, I can help someone and now I need help from someone else. Right. And, and if you can figure out how to do that and not be arrogant about it and not be um, too demanding or, or you know, uh, too nagging in some cases, mm-hmm. uh, it will work out for the better and, and you'll find that – um, it just it works out. It really works out. It's worked out really well for me. Awesome, awesome. That's great. Well, uh, I think we're about to hit the hour mark here. Yeah. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put a button on this. But um, to do any f- kind of final parting thoughts uh, before we uh, before we wrap this up? 
Um, well, first I might – so we've got some show notes, right, for people, right? Where would they find the show notes? Oh, good. You've been doing your homework. Yes, uh, we do have show notes, and they are available at uh, dgshow.org, D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. And actually, i got to go look up and see if jgshow.org is available. <laughs> um, um, you know, the, so I do. I get to talk a lot of different conferences, and, and I talk about some of this stuff, and talk a lot about open source applied to communities. And the the one message that I love to leave people with is uh, is to go find an open source community. Right? It, it took me eight years to to find that one. Like I wasn't actively looking for it, but it kind of, like I said, just kind of hit me in the face one day. Go find that community and make a difference and make a difference the open source way and use your knowledge about open source and participation and transparency and collaboration and rapid prototyping and and use all that to make a difference. But make a difference with something that you're passionate about. And and that's what I call the secret ingredient in open source is passion because if you're working on something that you don't care about, then why are you doing it in the first place? Yep, yep, makes total sense. So my my leading, usually my – last thing that I say to people is go change the world the open source way. Very nice. Awesome. Oh, well, Jason, thanks so much for, for taking your time. You're actually going on vacation now, right? Uh, pretty soon, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the 4th of July. I love celebrating uh, the Independence um, the Independence Day, and I'll be, I'll be going to the Outer Banks and enjoying some beach time with the family. Nice, nice. Well, have a great weekend, Jason. Thanks for having me. This was a great time. I hope to come back sometime and Talk about the next book. You bet. It's a date. (laughs) Thanks, man. All right.